Welcome to another edition of the Always Be Testing Podcast with your host, Ty DeGrange. Get a guided tour of the world of growth, performance marketing, customer acquisition, paid media, and affiliate marketing. We talk with industry experts and discuss experiments and their learnings in growth, marketing, and life. Time to nerd out, check your biases at the door, and have some fun talking about data-driven growth and lessons learned. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Always Be Testing podcast. I'm your host, Ty DeGrange, and I'm really, really pumped to have Lauren Nemeth with us today. What's up, Lauren? Great to be here, Ty. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. It's awesome to see you. Lauren is a definite badass. Uh, For those of you who don't know her, she's an amazing leader. She's been grown in her career in ad tech and leading teams. And uh, we're going to have a good conversation to dive into things. So I think it's going to be a good chat. How are things out in SF? Things are good. Don't listen to what the media says. San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great song. You still got it. Yeah. You know, the, if it bleeds, it leads, right? They're going to try to make it sound, sound way worse than it is. And it's still got it. Well, very cool. Lauren, for those of you who don't know, Lauren is the CRO of Twilio leading a team, a team of teams, if you will, of over 2,000 people, no big deal, the go-to-market team, and a revenue book of business of over $4 billion. So just just an immense amount of learnings and, and achievement there. She's led ad sales, uh, she's led revenue operations, and done so for brands like Nextdoor, Turn, URX, and Google uh, as well. So kind of a wealth of knowledge and just really grateful to have you on today and, and dive into things. So maybe to dive into a little bit for the audience, how would you describe what you do to a fifth grader? Just super basic for those of you who don't know. Sure. I'll explain maybe what Twilio does for a fifth grader and then specifically what I do at Twilio. So Twilio provides communications for businesses to communicate with their end consumers. So think of most times that you receive a text message a phone call or an email from a business to you as a consumer, vast majority of that runs through Twilio. We're the largest, what's called communications platform as a service, CPaaS company in the world. And that business line is a little over $4 billion globally. So what I do at Twilio is I am the chief revenue officer, as you mentioned. Every CRO title, I guess, is a little bit different. Uh, It always means sales. (laughs) So I can guarantee you that much, (laughs) um, which I spent a lot of my time doing, but it's Sales, solutions engineering, support, professional services, revenue operations, actually all of our technical operations teams as well, partnerships, so on and so forth. Really anything that touches customers and is revenue generating for the business. Our business is about a little over 300,000 companies globally work with Twilio. Um, As you can imagine, that's a long tail of developers that work with Twilio, which is a lot of what our brand is, but it's basically most of the enterprise companies that you can kind of see out there as well. So we've got enterprise, mid-market, and gross sales motions. That's awesome. Is there kind of a minimum barrier like for for a brand to really connect with Twilio and make sense for it to work? Obviously, they're working with invest less than ten dollars. It runs the whole gamut. So my nephew can yeah. create an app and he can start to send text messages and make phone calls with it. Or really large companies like Google and Facebook and Salesforce, etc., work with Twilio. That's awesome. And, and maybe give us a little bit about, about your background. How did you get into tech and ad tech specifically? 
It's happenstance, which I think kind of is how most people find their careers, probably. I graduated UCLA many, many moons ago, go Bruins. And my dad was the president of a life insurance company. And I remember he picked me up from a job interview I had at CB Richard Ellis. And I was like, oh, commercial real estate, that's like a you know dependable job that you have out of college. Like, isn't this what I should do? And I remember telling my dad, I was like, God, this is so boring, right? There's these people sitting in these like cubicles and it's so quiet. And like, I cannot believe this is what I'm going to go spend my life doing. And he's like, don't take the job. Why don't you meet some of my friends in a group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization? And I did. And one of the first people I met with was a gentleman by the name of Mark Jung. Mark was the CEO of iGen Entertainment. And I remember telling my dad, I was like, I don't really want to go meet with Mark because he like runs this like gaming men's lifestyle business. They had Rotten Tomatoes, Ask Men, GameSpy, IGN, et cetera. And I'm like, that's just not who I am. And he's like, just go take the meeting and talk to him. And I remember walking in and it was like young people and scooters and energy and like, you know, it just seemed like the place you wanted to be. And I sat down with Mark and Mark was like, your dad's probably one of the best salespeople I know. You should go into sales. And I was like, all right, like, let's do it. So it was as happenstance as that in terms of starting in tech and starting in sales. And really through that, I went through a lot of different companies. So IGN actually within months of me being there was acquired by Fox Interactive Media at the same time as MySpace, which was an interesting way to start your career as like a tech company that gets acquired by like an old print media corporation. And then, you know, I wanted to go do something in startup land, which is where you and I met the illustrious Adbright. So many distinguished. Never forgotten. (laughs) And honestly, my time at Adbright was short lived, but it was amazing. Like it was a very entrepreneurial, I'd say even developer first kind of focused business. And I think that's when I first got a taste of like, you know, there's a lot of money in advertising, billions of dollars transacting. We would literally accept fax orders. We would ship out fax orders, right? We would email JavaScript tags back and forth. We would expect a 10% discrepancy or what, like all this just nonsense in terms of how this multi-billion dollar industry was operating. And I remember at the time there was this thought of like, oh, ad exchanges are going to come in and kind of disrupt everything. And they're going to use software and they're going to use data and like, salespeople are going to go away. And like, that's going to be the future, how everybody transacts. And I'm like, I want to go do whatever that is. And I remember I basically cold called and interviewed at Right Media and at ECN and DoubleClick. And I was like, DoubleClick definitely has the right moat, right? They have the biggest ad server in the world on both the buy and sell side. If they can have this like auto magical exchange layer, just connect everybody they're going to print money. And like, that's the place I want to go be. So I cold called the GM of DoubleClick's ad exchange and told him how, why he needed to hire this 24 year old from San Francisco and how I was going to go build a really big business. And I had a really a decent bet, which was basically that advertisers and publishers are not going to readily adopt really transformative technology overnight. They're going to need some service level middle layer. And that was something that DoubleClick was never going to build. And so what I told Michael Rubenstein at the time was, why don't you let me come out there? I'll move to New York and I'll start to build a completely new sales channel, which basically goes after 
ad networks, what are now DSPs, SSP, whatever, all the different things that sit between an advertiser and publisher. And within like month one, I closed 50 deals. And I'd say within the first quarter, I was up to like 90% of the revenue for that business. And so then I ended up running sales for DoubleClick's ad exchange, Google bought that, whatever. It was a great experience. And then I just wanted to try my hand at startups and like continuing to ride that wave. So I did AppNexus, I did Turn. I mean, I did a number of those. So the rest was kind of history. That's amazing. A lot of ideas and questions come out of that. <laughs> First of all, I'm going to jump to another topic I was going to say for later, but you kind of outlined your ability to kind of see where the puck's going sure, and predict that. And I think that's awesome and commendable. Like, can you talk a little bit? Like, it seems like you almost have a Midas touch. If you look at your resume, it's like worked here, acquired, worked here, acquired. How did you, can you talk about like assessing those things? Because we've had those conversations and doing your best bet on the next one. Cause it seems like you've done a really good job of that. Thank you. I'm going to be so arrogant and awesome for me to be like, I do have a Midas touch. <laughs> no, really, I absolutely don't. I mean, I think Look, in any job, I look for three things. I think typically when people are looking at jobs, they overcomplicate it and they want like 10,000 different things. I think first and foremost is people. You work for crappy people, you will have a crappy outcome. Every business is a people business. Don't care what anyone says, but like you work for great people. And I mean, that is high intelligence, but also high ethics, real culture that matters, but like great people that you can go build something with and that you can really be shoulder to shoulder lockstep with is very, very hard to find. I think the second piece is product. And when I say product, it has to be transformative. I think a lot of people skate to where the puck is today, or oftentimes even where the puck has been, because that's kind of obvious. Very rarely do you find people who are lifting their head up to skate to where the puck is going. So I think to the point of like you and I working at Adbright and me seeing how ridiculous it was to be faxing insertion orders back and forth, like going in and saying like, look, this is where things are going to go. I want to go be where things are going to go. And I think even in this time now with like artificial intelligence, like that is the future period point blank. I don't care if you work in ad tech, healthcare, like you name it, it's every single industry is going to be disrupted that way. And I think really getting into those first principles of like, where is AI going to make the most transformative change short-term versus medium-term versus longer-term? And I think skating to where those pucks are going is like really, really critically important. And then last but not least, like this one I, I think is most often overlooked is like real operational maturity. I've worked for some first time CEOs. Let's just say they probably weren't so operationally mature. And they had really big delusions of grandeur of what they were going to be and how they were going to get there. But I think the companies that put in the operational rigor, that's like, look, I'm going to take step one this year to get to step one next year to get to step three of the following year, those are actually the companies that end up building long-term sustainable businesses. And you need to have that operational rigor and honestly, just honesty in terms of what your business is, if you're going to go be successful. So I typically look for those three things. It sounds like a degree of self-awareness from the founder of like, hey, this is what we're good at is what we're not. Is that kind of accurate? It's partly that, but it's also like, you know, how much money do you need to raise to achieve what? Like, what's the talent you need year one versus the talent you need year three? They're very different. And I think a very mature CEO who's sort of been there, done that, or even just a COO, like some level of executive presence that knows how to scale a business with rigor and understanding based on product market fit is very important. Absolutely. Going back to what you mentioned earlier around sales and kind of get into the game 
what point were you kind of light bulb went off that you were like, Hey, I'm actually good at this sales thing. I, I can do it. I love people and I love money and I've loved that forever. I mean, just to be honest. So I think like it does start there, by the way, not everybody is motivated by money or really enjoy being around people. So I think that is part of it. I have a really tough skin. Like I don't mind people saying no to me. Uh, if anything that sometimes can even be more fuel to the fire. So I think there's some of those like innate things that you find in salespeople. And I think then it's really about honing your craft and it's about putting a lot of discipline and rigor and metrics around the work that you do. But that real love and spark, I think is fundamentally innate in great salespeople. Yeah. I saw the quote recently. It's been said so many times. It's like this, the higher you go up the food chain, the more your job becomes sales. Do you feel like that's accurate? Well, I think everybody's job is sales. I think it's like one of those skills that I don't care if you're an engineer or if you're a HR professional, whatever it is, like everybody is in some form of sales of what they do. I mean, granted, I'm biased, but that is what I think. <laughs> I love it. What part about, maybe it's good to talk about your current role, but what aspect of it or do you find most like rewarding, interesting. You maybe talk a little bit about that and we can talk about some of the other roles as well. The best part of my job and the hardest part of my job are people. Like I love building really great teams. It is super hard. And I think particularly when you're at a 2000 person plus type of scale, you got a lot of problems every day. You know, every day, I promise you, there will be a people problem for you to deal with, but there's also an opportunity. And I think I get the pleasure of working with really talented people. And it's really about then how do you put them in the right roles with the right level of support to get the most out of them and continue to keep them motivated and engaged and sort of at the top of their game? And then it's a lot of it is communication. How do we make sure all the trains are kind of running together on time in sequence? And I think that everybody's rallied around one common vision. So that's the stuff that makes me the most happy. It's what I enjoy spending my time. I mean, I still love selling and a lot of the other core operational parts of my job, but it's the, the people building piece that's probably the most rewarding. Yeah. Well, you've progressed so far and so, so successfully that now you, it sounds like you get to kind of recruit, cultivate, manage, help, enable leaders and salespeople. Is that accurate? Big time. And honestly, my direct reports are infinitely more talented than I am. I like, I learn from, I do, I learn from them every day. They force me to think really differently and bigger about issues. I think we end up building a culture that is quite frankly, very diverse from a set of opinions perspective to make sure that we're getting the best out of each other. And I think that's been a really kind of successful plan that we've put together. I love that. When you talk to potential recruits, people that come into your org to be you know, leaders, managers, like what are some of the big things that you look for? What are some of the things that you watch out for? What are some of the things that you really are kind of require of that team that you're bringing into your organization or your using as a guide for your current team? I also have three things I look for. I love threes, right? So I think first and foremost is people, like great people managers. And it's about, I think it's about vision. I think it's about how you inspire people. It's how you build culture. It's your absolute must-haves versus nice-to-haves. But I think finding someone who has repeatedly built great teams, a manager that people want to go follow and repeatedly go follow to their next jobs, like those are the type of people you want to bring on board. The second, which is a very short, like a close second to that number one of being a great people manager is performance. You need people who are highly accountable, metrics-driven, performant in whatever it is that they do on that team. 
and have a track record of consistently exceeding those performance expectations. And then the last one for me is process, right? You got to be someone who has taken something either from, you know, zero to a thousand or a thousand to a million or whatever that ends up being and actually can build that repeatable process over and over again. So you're not just once again, skating to where the puck is today, but also where the business will be in a year or so from now. That's awesome. As you've kind of, um, you know, navigated various situations, whether it's, you know, having options presented to you, going to, going to roles where you're, you know, going through an acquisition process, what are some things that maybe you've gotten data back from, you know, peers, managers, folks within the organization, leaders that say that, Hey, this is, this is how Lauren kind of separates. Obviously you've talked about a lot of the things that have worked well, you know, some of the things that you really have honed in on. I think you've kind of taught, touched on this topic already, but what are some of the things that maybe you've gotten as feedback to be like, well, I didn't know that was the case or to show that, Hey, you really separated from the pack or you've really, um, you've kind of, kind of nailing the, the, the role as you've discussed. Yeah. I think it's a few things, right? First and foremost, I'm very data driven. I don't make any decisions without data, even though like, sure, I have instincts, et cetera, but I want to substantiate them with data. I think is very, very important. I think the second piece is I'm not afraid to take risks and I make decisions very quickly. So once I take all the data that I meet, like I need, I talk to a lot of different diverse opinions. Once I make a decision, I will make that decision quickly and I will enact on it. I will then also look at data yet again to prove out that that was in fact the right decision. And if it wasn't, I have no ego about pivoting and moving into another direction. Like that's totally fine. So for me, that's probably like what's been maybe the most successful there is like, look at the data, get a lot of diverse opinions, make decisions quickly, but then quickly validate that that in fact was the right decision and keep tinkering, pivoting from there. Not to sound judgmental, but in our industry, do you get a sense there's like a question, are there, are there like talented, smart, crazy good people that what part of that do you think they get hung up on the most or, or maybe they get wrong the most, Um, the decisioning process? Everybody's afraid of failing, right? That's kind of a common one. So making decisions, especially big decisions or big departures in terms of strategy, et cetera, like that scares people because that's usually when they think they get fired or people will judge them or kind of wait for them to fail, et cetera. And you've got to have a lot of faith in yourself and trust in yourself, but also once again, validation and the data that this is, is the right decision. And you got to bring people along with that too. So it's not just you and your ivory tower making the decision, but this is kind of the process that you went through with a lot of other constituents to make sure that this was the right decision. I think the second piece is there's some level of like, you know, humility, lack of ego to be like, yeah, I screwed up or like we should make a change or the data is telling me something different. I think usually when people make decisions, they get so locked in on it. They're like, I have to stick with this because I put my name and brand behind it. And that is a recipe for disaster, 10 out of 10. But I think a lot of it just starts with like confidence, faith in yourself, desire to innovate, desire to do things differently, willingness to fail, humility and admission when things don't go well. Those are usually less common. Yeah, for sure. I would agree with you thinking about good decisioning, doing the right thing, leadership, who are some of you touched on some of those, but like, who are some of the folks that inspire you? Who are some of the managers that you just think very highly of, or or maybe just folks that have really influenced your decisioning and how you operate? I mean, I'd have to say my current manager, right? That'd be so bad if I didn't. (laughs) Um, I mean, my current manager, he's the president at Twilio. His name is Kozima Ship Chandler. 
look, Kozema is um, really a CFO and COO by trade, right? He is, he is like Mr. Metrics, analytical. It's got to be ingrained in the data. He's very, very methodical in his thinking. And he forces me to be a lot more methodical in my thinking. So I think Kozema has been a really great mentor and, and boss. Michael Rubenstein is someone who I worked with at DoubleClick into the Google acquisition and then also followed to AppNexus. So Michael has the longest tenure as someone who I've worked for, worked together for like seven and a half years total. Nice. Michael's a very, just like thoughtful, patient. He's actually slower in decision-making than I am. But once again, he also requires a lot of methodical rigor that I think particularly earlier in my career, which is when I worked for him, I was much hastier in terms of my decision-making. He did put a lot of rigor on that as well. He also just gave me a lot of rope. Like he was very clear that, Lauren, if you put points on the board, I will keep extending you more and more rope. And that was like exactly the type of manager that I needed at that point in time, because I didn't mind working 16 hour days and investing wholeheartedly into my career. That's what I wanted to do, but I wanted the sort of ROI in terms of that investment and Michael gave me that ROI in spades over those seven and a half years. So he was a very important boss too. That's awesome. That's so cool. What are some of the things that you kind of want, you know, flipping it, you know, as a leader now, what are some of the things that you're kind of striving for as a leader, or maybe some things that you've picked up on from folks that have appreciated your leadership and your counsel and your support, or what are you kind of learning through that process? And, and what are folks kind of sharing with you that you, you want to share with the audience? In terms of like what I could do better or... Not so much that, but more like, do you feel like there are certain highlights that are coming up for people that that say, hey, Lauren, like, thanks for doing XYZ or you're the kind of leader that... Oh, yeah. I appreciate like, what are some of the like the highlights? Not to toot your horn too much, but uh, what are some of those things? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's actually funny. I just had a conversation with someone earlier today about this. I'm, first of all, I work as hard, if not harder than anybody on my team. So like, you will never see me ivory towering about anything. Like I will roll up my sleeve. I'll do whatever work it basically requires to run this business successfully. And I have zero ego about that whatsoever. I think people appreciate that a lot. I'm very direct. I'm as straight shooter as you possibly can find. And by the way, that's not everybody's cup of tea, but for people who do appreciate like really direct feedback, I will give it to you straight every single time, good or bad. I'm very loyal to my team. And I think in return, my team is very, very loyal to me. And I'll pick up work for them when they need it. I'll stand behind them when they need some support with promotions, time off, whatever it requires. But like I show up in my actions, not just my words. Like that is probably another kind of defining character of mine. I love that. I would have to agree with that sentiment. So it's it's amazing. And very cool and, and very impressive. There's more I wanted to ask about that that came up that I'm trying to draw from, which is really interesting. Maybe jumping over to another topic, and we may come back to that one because that's really interesting, is um, kind of like the ad tech world. What do you feel like people get wrong about kind of the ad space, the DSP world, the world that you know we've been in for quite a while that, that maybe is like not as known as people not as known as it should be to the even the ad world or the tech world or the folks that are they're looking at it from the outside. I'm just I'm just curious if you have some observations in ad marketplaces, ad serving, DSP, all the stuff that we've dealt with that it's kind of notable or interesting learning that maybe people don't know. 
I mean, this is not going to sound nice. It's just probably what the first thing that comes to my head, though, is uh, I just think we keep admiring the same problems and topics, but we're not really innovating through them. It's like, oh, data is really important. Oh, privacy is an issue. Like, but there's not really like stair-stepping innovation. And I think even in this, once again, we'll talk about artificial intelligence, but like as we think about AI and what that's going to do to the marketer, right? Like once again, like forget about ad tech and DSPs and SSPs and all these acronyms and nonsense that we've talked about for so long. Like how is this fundamentally going to change the way a marketer interacts with their end consumers or prospects? And I think getting back to those first principles and I think taking this moment today to figure out like, how do you actually completely turn this on its head? As opposed to like tinkering with ad servers and DSPs as we've always known them, how do you maybe rewrite a piece of technology that stair steps over all of that and that automates this in a way that is much more elegant and I think allows marketers to have more trusted, revenue positive, influential relationships with their end consumers? It's kind of that big systems thinking that I think is very much lacking today. And I go to all these conferences and I listen to all these panels and whatnotness. And it's just a lot of little ankle biting kind of topics. Sorry if that's rude. No, I, I think that's an amazingly uh, refreshing and thoughtful and, and good take. And I think it's accurate. I mean, are, are there folks that you feel are closer to that than others and thinking bigger? Because I think it is a challenge in, a, in an intelligent direction that you know, we need to be thinking in are there are there folks or, or maybe resources that obviously AI is kind of the foundational change that that people are either chasing or going to get a wave run over them with potentially. So, what are some folks that we should be like looking at, or what are some what are some parts of that do you think people should kind of uh, be aware of at the very least? I mean, these are, these are, by the way, Twilio customers as well as some Twilio products that I'm going to shamelessly plug because I actually do think it is attacking this in a way that's really interesting. So, you know, the whole concept of marketers getting their data act together is not something that's new. I think it's more a question of like, how do you do that in a way that is set up very effectively for AI and automation? I think obviously Segment, which is a product that Twilio obviously owns and operates today, is the you know market-leading CDP for a reason. And I think really understanding who your end consumer is and being able to easily take all of your different disparate pieces of information across various data lakes that you might have, Salesforce instances, ServiceNow instances, you name it. Like people have data in so many different places. Putting that into actually one centralized repository where you truly understand who Ty or who Lauren is and attach all of that information in a centralized fashion, I think that is like mission critical number one for marketers. But then it goes into like the orchestration layer. And I think there's really interesting companies like Attentive and Clavio and Postscript and Braze and Iterable, et cetera, who are really thinking about like, how do I create millions of campaigns that are 100% personalized now to the end consumer, right? So when we think about advertising historically, we'll take maybe an audience segment and we'll kind of like blast them all the exact same message over the exact same channels or the end, same end websites, which is kind of silly, right? And maybe you should actually be talking to Lauren over WhatsApp or actually maybe email is what's going to be most productive for me right now or sending me a Facebook ad. Like it's very personalized to like, what am I doing in this moment? What are my preferences as an end consumer? How are you going to get the best engagement with me? based on what you're trying to achieve. And I think those companies are doing some really innovative stuff. I love that. 
makes me want to do like a series on just just the notion of personalization is is yeah a massive opportunity been through a lot of really interesting you know successful acquisitions what what's something that you kind of has a, as an aha moment or something you're like man that was a great learning or a learning that you kind of it sticks with you through some of those acquisition experiences acquisitions are hard <laughs> i'll start with that as number 1 Look, I think the most important thing is the like the company that is acquiring needs to have a singular executive sponsor that is committed to the successful of that integration. I even see this now at Twilio, like we do a bunch of acquisitions as well today. The most successful acquisitions that we've done are the ones where we've had great executive sponsors internally who are really accountable and thoughtful about how to make that the most successful. And you look that across you know, revenue expectations, people expectations, technical integrations, blah, 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 blah. But I think having sort of that singular owner within the acquiring company is really important. And I think from the acquired company, a lot of it is just attitude, right? Like I think the worst times I've seen this is like companies that have been acquired and they're like, my culture is the best. The way we used to do things are the best. And they get very dogmatic and like their identity is sort of that separate company as opposed to, I think, being much more open to, look, this is a much bigger opportunity. We're in a bigger company today that probably has a different set of values, a different set of operating cadences, et cetera. But this is going to help us build a better business for our consumers, for our employees, for everybody. And I think rally around a sense of like identity and change management is really, really important to making those acquisitions successful. And rarely actually have I seen that be the case. That's awesome. Super interesting. That was just talking to somebody today about that that onboarding and that integration process in an acquisition being just super critical. So it's great to hear, makes sense that you're kind of underscoring that. What is a uh, sliding door moment in your career where you kind of had a couple options and you chose one? Maybe you can share some of that if you don't mind or lesson learned. If, you, if one was interesting or maybe one that you thought of, what or if? the right where I picked the wrong door. I've also picked wrong doors. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think the wrong doors are maybe more interesting, but yeah, maybe both. Like, yeah, like love to hear. I'll give you one of each. They, and ironically, they're probably the, my two most recent. I went to Nextdoor as a complete passion project. I think as someone who's like worked in advertising for a really long time, I think you sort of get jaded maybe by a lot of things, but also if you just look at social media writ large, like, let's be honest, it sucks. Like it's it's probably a net negative to society is probably the actual truth. And I looked at next door. I'm like, dude, how cool would that be? If you could actually help connect people locally, like you could actually get people in their community, knowing who one another are helping each other, meeting each other offline, supporting local businesses and local causes. You know, it's like, that's like the feel good stuff that we probably should be doing yeah. in society. Yeah. And I think typically technologists, like they don't think about that. So I was like, oh, that's a really amazing opportunity. I'd love to go there. And they were basically pre-revenue when I started there. And I'm like, I want to go help them build the biggest business possible, get next door into every single neighborhood and make this a swimming success. And I think the, my intentions were good. I think what I didn't fully understand probably going into that is really just how different consumer is from B2B. And, you know, running a revenue like organization for B2C, just in my experience, was not very fulfilling for me. And the main reason being, it's like, you're hot when you're hot and you're not when you're not. 
And all I need is a few, you know, racist comments in a neighborhood or something off color to really piss off Walmart or one of our biggest advertisers. And I'll see my revenue dip like immediately day after day. And that's stressful as a CRO because you want to build something long-term and sustainable. And you realize that you don't really control all the content. You actually don't even control the growth or the engagement of the platform. And so you're kind of at the whim of like, a lot of external factors that I think make it really stressful and difficult to be a CRO for a, a B2C company. So I really enjoyed my experience at Nextdoor. It's a great company. It's a great tool. Everyone should use it. <laughs> but uh, I think my stint in B2C is officially over after that. That was not the right sliding door for me. And honestly, like probably one of the r- best sliding doors I've picked is actually Twilio now. And obviously I'm partially biased because I'm still at Twilio, but like you know, if I think back to the first principles of like, what do marketers need and want? Like they need and want trusted relationships with their end consumers. And there's no better form of a trusted relationship than a consumer raising their hand and saying like, I want you to email me, right? I want you to call me. I want you to text message me, right? Like as soon as you can get me these shoes at 40% off, like send me a text message and I will be right there to purchase it. Like that's- Love it kind of the holy grail. And it's the earned media that everybody really wants to get towards. And I think Twilio has a really amazing ability to help marketers harness that data, facilitate those conversations in a way that is like trusted and impactful. And it's been super fun because it looks, it walks and talks a lot like ads, right? It's a two-sided marketplace. It uses data. Like it has the same connotations of fraud and wasted, like all the same things that you see in ads. But I think applied to a set of channels I think are future-proofed and I think going to be a lot more impactful. Love it. And you're skating where the puck's going because of all the privacy concerns we have. So you're one step ahead of everyone again, Lauren. You did it. I'm trying. (laughs) You're awesome. And this has just been like a chock full of awesome information. But what's something fun, fun maybe that people don't know about you, you know, personally in your life, what you can share that folks don't know? I am married to someone I went to preschool with who is a police officer, which is a very different profession than mine. So we have incredibly different day jobs and fun dinner conversations as a result. Awesome. I rescued a pit bull right before I had my kids. And so I'm like super into pit bull advocacy and getting people to like think in a way that is much more aware of just how amazing that breed is and how lovely they are. Yeah. They like to cuddle. Yeah. They're they're honestly, they're just like big family dogs, loving sweet peas. Anyway, ladies love my life. Her name's Lady, my dog. And uh, I don't know, I live in San Francisco and like people, like making money, like hanging out with you. So that's about it. <laughs> love it. It's amazing, Lauren. It's uh, always a pleasure for folks that want to get in touch, that want to reach out to you and maybe learn more. Where can they, where can they find you? You can always find me on LinkedIn. Send me a note on LinkedIn. Happy to chat. Beautiful. Always a pleasure, Lauren. It was awesome. Great conversation as always. And uh, hope to see you out in SF again soon. Sounds good. Thank you. All right.